Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buda. This episode, we're talking about La Bafana, which was originally published in the January 1973 issue of Galaxy. We read it in the collection The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories, and this time we did not read it alone. We are really, really thrilled, really excited to introduce uh, our very special guest, Mike Morrison, who is the co-host of Metatrex, among other things. Uh, Metatrex is my favorite Star Trek podcast, and it is a Star Trek and philosophy podcast. Mike, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, both of you having me. It's, this is uh, truly an honor, and I'm really glad that Zachary was able to loan me over and we were able to work everything out with the transporters to get me here, so it's, it's a pleasure. Yeah, it did take some doing to to get the transporter to work across parallel universes here, but we yes. we did we did manage to work it out. <laughs> so, Mike, you have uh, a, both a, a background in philosophy and theology. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in these topics? Yeah, more uh, theology than philosophy. Uh, Zachary is more of the philosophy side of Metatrex. Uh, my interest primarily was in and is in uh, theology. However, I I do dabble occasionally. I I play a philosopher on TV. That's that's what I like to say. But my my interest primarily has always been uh, theology and so it's a great balance when Zachary and I are on on mic together for Metatrex. Uh I I'm a Bible college student, a, th- a theology student uh going way back many many years ago and uh I'm I'm actually a bivocational pastor. I'm the administrative pastor of my church here in the Dallas, Texas area. And so I get to flex those muscles on a regular occasion. And then, of course, uh, you know, those opportunities that I have to get on mic uh, with Zach and, and talk about theology, philosophy through the lens of Star Trek. So that's going to be absolutely perfect for the story that we're doing tonight. But you are also bringing some other expertise with you. You are also a writer. And uh, Mike's new book, Hannah Goodhart and the Guardian of Time, is just out. Uh, Mike, can you tell us about the book? I'm really excited about this. It uh, it was definitely a labor of love. I started re- uh, writing this book in 2015. Uh, towards the end of that year, and it's it's taken a while to get it from a manuscript to a published novel, but uh, here we are. Uh, Hannah Goodhart and a Guardian of Time tells the story of a teenage girl who discovers a small object of mythological origins, and she and her friends are thrust through a portal when they begin an adventure that'll take them from their home here in North Texas uh, to events in the past and to even other worlds that they never could have possibly imagined. Her life is definitely getting ready to change. This unassuming girl, uh, her life is turned upside down by finding this object. And their only hope of finding their way back is to track down a time-traveling thief from another world and return this mysterious object to its rightful keeper, known to them only as the Guardian. Well, I'm very excited to to read the book. And of course, this is the first of many. Is that right? Yes, yes. This is definitely the first in a series. I'm already working on uh, the follow-up novel that is tentatively called The Secret of Erebos. And hopefully we'll have a publication date on that very soon. Well, this is going to be a fantastic series. It's a great, great bit of, of speculative fiction aimed at a, a younger audience. So uh, really, I'd encourage all of our listeners to, to pick it up. And, you know, it is almost the holidays here. So uh, we'll make a good gift for people as well. Absolutely. Yeah, sounds really fantastic and, and a lot of fun. I'm excited to read it myself. But we are covering 
a story by Gene Wolfe tonight. Glenn, uh, why don't you get us started? What 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 happens in La Bufana? What is the story about? Before we get into it, I think we should note that La Bufana is characteristically wolfish. It, it, you know, it makes sense and it all falls into place really only after you've read it one time through. So you need to read it a second time. And here on the show, we often love to preserve the obfuscations as, as well as the, the clues in our recaps. But uh, this story is so short and we want to get right into the heart of the discussion tonight that we'll just say at the top here that this story is about Christ being born on another planet in the not too distant future. And this story takes place on an alien world. It's an unnamed planet with a colonizing human population and an indigenous sentient species. The, the story opens from the perspective of one of these aliens, or natives, really, uh, a person named Zaz. Zaz has fur that he licks clean after his workday at the pits. He has six legs, and he howls outside the door of his human friend, John Bananas, as a way of ringing the doorbell or knocking on the door. And John isn't home from his job at the slaughterhouse or the slaughter market yet, but his wife, Teresa, lets Zav in to lounge on the flat stone before their fire, which is a, a piece of furniture that they have seemingly just for Zaz. And even with John still at work, the house is full of people. There's Teresa, whom we're told is only in her early 30s, but already has gray streaks in her hair. There are the Bananas children, Maria and Mark, who are playing a game by drawing on the home's dirt floor. And then there is Mother Bananas, John's mother, who only arrived on this planet from Earth yesterday, and who, in fact, Zaz had brought to the home in a rusty power wagon. And I just have to say, I love these introductions. We're only half a page into this story, and without really spelling anything out, Wolf has shown us who these people are, what their lives are like, and what kind of world this is. Yeah, it is a masterful introduction to what you said, Glenn, is a very short story. Wolf rapidly situates us on a strange planet where the native creatures and humans have already found some sort of way of living harmoniously together and working together. But because Teresa is young and displaying these signs of aging, we get a sense that this is a very stressful place to live in, and that John and Teresa and their whole family are very poor, but they're also really hospitable people. And it's incredible how much we learn in two or three paragraphs in the opening of the story. I also have to point out here that all the names uh, that we've gotten so far, with the exception of Zaz, are traditional Christian names. John could refer to any number of Johns, for instance, John the Baptist, John the Beloved, John the Revelator. Teresa is a name that I associate with Teresa of Avila, uh, the 16th century Carmelite nun and mystic. Mark was the author of one of the Gospels, and you know Maria is the given name of the mother of Jesus. And these names, I think, either work to give us information about the family and that they are from a heavily Christianized society, or that the names work here to symbolically reinforce the meaning of the story, which you gave us up front uh, in this episode. So it could also work both ways, too. Um, in any event, this family is very welcoming to their strange planetary neighbors, or at least welcoming to Zaz. Yeah, I have to say, first of all, that short fiction is incredibly difficult to do well. And I have to say that Wolf does this so well. You're, ver you're very on the nose when you say that within just a 
couple of pages here. We know so much about these characters. Uh, we learn so much with with so little given to us, really. Uh, he's able to pack a lot of information in there. I'm interested in etymology, and I was able to kind of uh, go back and dig into my memory banks a little bit and try to uh, piece together some of the etymology here of these names. These are very traditional Christian names. Uh, I, I, I couldn't really find anything substantive that I, I felt that uh, inform the story in any way. John, for instance, means Jehovah's been gracious and considering the banana situation in this uh, in this scene that we're given. I, I don't think they, that he is necessarily a representation of the of the graciousness of of Jehovah. But uh, nevertheless, I, I do think it's interesting that these are all very traditional Christian names, and I don't think that's by accident. I think uh, more than anything, it just informs and reinforces this idea that uh they are key players uh in something that we don't we don't ever really get to experience we don't get to see uh, we we end the story kind of the night before uh the the incarnation of Christ here in this world but i i get the I get the feeling that they're key players in this just because of these wonderful rich uh Christian names that they've been given. This is characteristic Wolf here to make heavy use of these biblical names with all of these important connotations and not really clue us in as to what he wants us to to do with these other than that the story has Christian, specifically Christian overtones. But I think we'll spend some time at the end of the story seeing if we can try to tease out some some meaning here, uh, which is really just our code for argue for a few minutes and not come to any conclusions. (laughs) Well, as Zaz makes himself comfortable by the fire, Mother Bananas retreats to some back room in the house, which prompts a sigh of relief from Teresa. And she apologizes to Zaz about the old woman's rudeness and seems to think that she left because she's uncomfortable around the alien, even though it's his native world and he's the one with the right to be uncomfortable around her. But Teresa also says that it is hell living with your mother-in-law in such a small space. And at this point, John comes home and suddenly, this is like a grand entrance. Suddenly there's a lot of commotion in the house. John is upset that Teresa has allowed his mother to go in a room that has no fire instead of making her stay close to the heat. And we're meant to understand that it's, it's very cold. Zaz says that this is his fault, really, and he offers to leave so that Mother Bananas can come out and be comfortable without this alien presence. But John doesn't want that. And we get a clear depiction here of a person who is trying to do well in his various roles as son, friend, husband, and and also father here. But uh, there's also a sort of comedic bit to all of this, too, because behind all of this chatter is the moaning of a woman next door who has gone into labor. Right. There's a real connection here, actually, I think, between John's being pulled in a million directions and the woman going into labor next door, namely in that John does want to do right by his family and he works really hard and he wants to seem welcoming to his friend, but he is way overextended. And so this drama unfolding next door is really just another imposition on his life, another thing he can't control that he has too many things to keep up with. And I'm sure he's thinking something like, are we going to have to hear this woman moaning all night? I'm trying to have a nice conversation with my friend after work and like deal with my family. And John's irritation and kind of mild frustrations and outbursts really grow throughout this story that just demonstrate that he's just got too much going on. But the many roles of John is also a crucial 
part of the storytelling technique that Wolf deploys, because this is a story that's told primarily through dialogue. And as we'll see in a few minutes, John only has a few moments to talk interrupted with Zaz. And as we get deeper into their conversation, the whole household basically shows up and all of them talk with John, responding at different points to different bits of conversation that everybody has said. And it's amazing the way that Wolf uses this method to tell maybe a few stories uh, about this family in just a few pages. And this conflict of John uh, of John's, that he has to wear all of these hats and the many conflicts that he has with his family also work to move the story forward. So I just think Wolf is in full form here. This is just an amazing storytelling technique where the craft and the themes and everything works together. And it's amazing. I actually thought of a couple of characters right out of the narrative of the Gospels that uh, John really seems to embody. And one of those, of course, I think to some degree is the innkeeper. Although there's no indication that they're renting the house to the Jews that were living next door, I, I, I got this sense that with her being in labor and them hearing the screams, and, you know, I, so I, my mind goes to the innkeeper in the narrative of uh, the nativity story. But also later on in the Gospels, we're introduced to sisters. Mary and Martha, and of course they have a brother named Lazarus. And Mary and Martha are, are very different uh, characters. Mary is um, very much uh, a dreamer. She's she's at the feet of Jesus. That that's where she wants to spend all of her time. She's hanging on every word while her sister is trying to prepare things around the house uh, for this dinner party that they're having. And she's she's stressed out and she's getting aggravated with her sister. And and she goes to Jesus and she says. Jesus, listen, you see what I'm I'm dealing with here. Can you can you tell my sister to come and give me a hand? And Jesus says to her, Martha, you are troubled about a great many things. And I thought about that line when I was reading what was going on for John. He's got, you know, he's troubled about a great many things. His his wife's irritated because his mother's there. He's worried about his mother's care. He's got his kids to take care of. He's trying to be a good friend. And, you know, we have this Jewish lady in the throes of labor next door. He's troubled about a great many things uh and and yet uh we don't know what will what will come of the next day but uh i'm hopeful that john's life will settle long enough for him to take in the uh the enormity of what's happening in his world yeah when we get to the sort of unwritten and true end of this story there's a lot of hope i think on the table for this family and for john and and one of it i think one of the things uh, that is hopeful comes with a bit of a tragic tinge which i'll which i'll bring up when we get to it i love the line that you drew there between uh, mary and martha and and jesus uh and this kind of story of the incarnation um i think it's fantastic john is kind of like a classic harried character and he's more hysterical than we see the women sort of being which is like kind of a traditional trope that is reversed is that the 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 male here is acting wildly and and kind of can't keep his emotions in and the women are kind of stoic and able to uh i don't know perform under pressure i think in in a, a little bit more nobly it's fascinating and i just i think that's a great connection he drew 
Yeah, I love this connection as well. And I, I have often thought that there might be some way to take a look at Wolf's stories, especially these really short stories, and figure out what the homily or the sermon was, you know, two weeks before he wrote this, that he's he's in the pews hearing this line be read to him and then explicated in a, in a sermon. And I'm sure he's paying attention to the sermon, but he might also be starting to write a sci-fi story in, his, yes. in the back of his mind. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I can tell you from my own experience, I have... I have even been in the throes of writing a sermon and go, wow, I need to put that in a story. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's, that is how the sausage is made. I, I, I think uh, it's fantastic. I also think there's a little note, a uh, personal note here for uh, Gene Wolfe, who famously would get up before dawn to write for two hours in his basement before he would go to work. And I think we see why he doesn't do it when he gets home from work, I think, here in, in this story. Well, John and Zaz chat by the fire, and we learn a little bit more about this speculative world. We're going to get some, some good world building here. John and his wife and kids had moved here from Earth because there was work at this slaughter market. And John signed a labor contract and in exchange for some term of service and presumably pretty low wages or maybe even zero wages, he and his family received passage from Earth. And his kids remember a time when they didn't have enough to eat and maybe really didn't have anything at all to eat. But all of this is just background for John to tell his friend, to tell Zaz about his worries. He he wishes that his mother hadn't come here. And he knows that's an awful thing to think. We're supposed to, to love our mothers and to want them to be near us. But she says that she was able to, to buy a spaceship ticket to this planet, which is a very expensive thing to do. She could do this only because she'd inherited some money. And now she intends to die here on this alien world. And there isn't any of that money left. So she has given up a potential life of comfort in order to live in this small home with a, a dirt floor. And on top of all of that, he says that she doesn't even seem like his mother anymore a, a, at all. It's It's been 22 years Newtonian time since they left, which means that she's 22 years older than when he last saw her, though he will have aged much less. This is a universe with relative time, uh, you know, faster than light spaceships. And in that time, she has gone from being a great big woman with a loud voice to an old lady who is dried up and bent over. And really, the, the only thing that this woman has in common with his memory of his mother is her black dress. In this section, we really see John's stress come into its fullest form. When, when we as readers learn about how poor this family is, that they're selling themselves into some sort of servitude in order just to eat, and that that is the best choice for this family, we see that John really has no way to be free. He, he cannot be free under the conditions in which he's living. And you can now understand a little of his irritation that his wealthy mother, who's so wealthy at this point through this inheritance that she doesn't even need to keep up with the changing names of currency on her own world, uh, has spent all of her money to come to this planet and only to add herself as a burden to his household. It's just, it's brutal. And on top of that, you know, he, of course he can't say no to her. And all of that is causing stress in his own marriage. And Boy, it sounds like this guy's just having a rough couple of years. <laughs> but in this section, we also get this repetition of this image of the of the woman being stooped over or bent over. Teresa is described as stooped over in the early part of this story, and Mother Bananas is bent. And even though we know that her being bent over signifies something different when we get to the end of the story, I get the sense that Wolf is pointing out 
you know, kind of what I was pointing at before, the, the way that women bear these burdens is very different from the way that men in this story, or at least John Bananas, is bearing his burdens of life. The women just carry the weight in the story, and John uh, just kind of complains and is short with everybody. So th- mm. I think Wolf is doing something really great here with these images uh, and telling the story in dialogue, mostly through the voice of John, to give us a fuller picture of what life is like on this planet for this family. Once again, for me, there was no shortage of line drawing that I, I was able to do between this story and the Gospels. And Mother Bananas really took on an image of that widow with her two mites. To to John Bananas, what she had inherited was a great deal. He says she could have lived the rest of her life on what she had she had received, and you know she's just blown it on this ticket to come to this you know, to this place. And so to him, that seemed like a lot, but it, it occurs to me that it's very little to her to give that up to go and not just be with her son, but, you know, we find out later in the story that she's there for a much higher purpose, but it, it really took on a a connotation to me that in many ways, she was remarkably similar to the widow and her mites from the parable of Christ. Yeah, I think that's another excellent line to draw here. Uh, and I'm going to have, I think, a little bit more to say about that when we get to the end of the story. Um, because, of course, she, one, wants to die on some level. Uh, yeah. and, and there's only one way that she can do that, which is a bit of yes. a tragedy to this story. Um, but the other thing is, is that, of course, for her, this is the most worthwhile thing she can do with her life. And, and she knows she won't be a burden for long for her family. And we see some, I think, some real contrast between the the two parent characters in this story who are actually fleshed out in any way that, in such that we know about their motives. I mean, John Bananas himself has come to this planet in order to do right for his kids because he loves his kids, but yet has trouble understanding that that might be someone else's primary motivation for making choices as well, which uh, I, I think is an interesting dichotomy. I think we probably all struggle with that in our personal lives. Speaking of the, of the kids, the, the kids, Maria and Mark, they actually like having their grandmother around and uh, they decide to retell a story that they had heard from her earlier in the, the day while John was at work. And this story is about Labafana, the Christmas witch. Uh, Labafana has been alive since Christ was born, and indeed she almost participated in the birth of Christ. The the three wise men stopped at her house to ask for directions, and they told her that they were on their way to see the newborn Messiah and that she should come with them. Everyone should should go see this birth. But she declined because she was too busy sweeping. But when she was done sweeping, she decided to go looking for Christ, but then at that point she couldn't find him. The the story that the kids are retelling here is interrupted at this point because there are other things happening in the house, but we'll, we'll get back to that in, in just a moment. Uh, while the kids are telling this story in a kind of tag team way, the, the moans and the screams from the, the woman giving birth next door are, are getting louder and louder. And we're, we're told here as well by Teresa that the, the people next door are Jews. And Wolf delivers this line with a, a comedic wink. He, he introduces this bit of information as something that Teresa blurts out apropos of nothing, which I, I did think was, was really quite funny. But also, Mother Bananas at this point has emerged from the back room and has now joined everyone near the fire. 
And at this point, Mark asks Zaz if he knows about the baby Jesus, while at the same time, Mother Bananas asks her son if they have the faith here. And Zaz answers both questions by saying, quite simply, that the baby Jesus has never come to his world. At this point, Maria finishes the story of La Bafana. The the Christmas witch has continued searching every place around the world for baby Jesus for thousands of years uh, with her presence for him. She can't find him, and so instead she leaves presents for every kid that she finds, and she has to do it forever. But Mother Bananas corrects Maria here, and this is the last line of the story. She says, not forever, dearest, only until tomorrow night. I love the end of this story. It's such a wonderful yes. ending. I think uh, I think Wolf is playing with some of the old, you know, true meaning of Christmas tropes. And here, particularly, I'm thinking about, you know, the moment in It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey is just fed up with all the chaos around him. And he has to learn then a little lesson by the angel Clarence about why having a loving family is more important than money. And I think in this story, you know, there is a lot of money and economic factors that are of concern and are maybe very important to understanding some of the conflicts and the and the situations in the Bananas family. But we're reminded at the end of the story that something far more important is taking place and that Mother Bananas will not be around much longer to, you know, burden the family. And perhaps something better is, is right around the corner for everyone and may perhaps and, – and maybe – you know, some of these slaves on this planet will be set free. Um, and, you know, as Glenn said in the beginning, the implication here is that the new savior is being born next door. You know, there's a moment in this section where we learn that there's no place at the inn, so to speak, and that this couple can't stay where they should have stayed. And that next door is actually a kind of charity house, which makes me wonder if, if John and Teresa and their kids also live in, in this sort of charity um, situation. And, you know, all of this information that you laid out actually really clearly, Glenn, is revealed in this cacophony of dialogue where small details are really easy to gloss over. There's so much great metaphor. And for instance, the fact that John and his family are wrapped up in some type of literal servitude, I, I think, is a, a metaphor for a a sense of spiritual bondage. I think that in the Gospels, you know, Christ came to set captives free. And so for John and for the Bananas family, that's a that's a very literal thing. I think there's a need for literal freedom, but I, I think it's a beautiful metaphor. Wolf does such a great job of, of creating this wonderful metaphor for spiritual bondage uh, that I, I, is just so rich. Well, on that note, let's let's move into the discussion half of the of the the show here. And I just, you know, as I like to do, I, I want to start with maybe some just some some factual stuff and some world building stuff. And obviously, what we are getting here, as we have said repeatedly, is a sort of retelling, a reimagining of the nativity story on another world in the not too distant future. So I think it's probably valuable to compare the elements. Uh, in this story with the elements in the actual account of Christ's birth in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So I just want to start by maybe talking about what elements uh, that we find in Matthew and Luke that Wolf hasn't actually included in this story and uh, see if maybe there's any significance to uh, those uh, omissions or, or any of the alterations that we might find here. Yeah, we don't see, for instance, the the Christmas star. We don't see anything about the shepherds. Predominantly, uh, we see that Wolf, through the telling of the story of La Bafana, 
we see the wise men and, and some of that uh, imagery is kind of woven into the story. But, you know, we're missing things like, you know, the heralding star. We're certainly missing the darker uh, points of the nativity story the for instance the uh the slaughter of the innocents uh herod and and all of that that's kind of omitted from this story we don't really see anything super dark here in the story except for the fact that the bananas family are tied in some state of servitude uh, i think that's probably the the biggest omission uh, that i found as i read through this struck me as well, and uh, I'm a, a, a late Roman, early medieval historian, and so I've always been really fascinated by the the bits that we get at the the opening of of especially of, of Luke that tell us about the way Roman government is functioning and, and yes. wraps up the the movement of of peoples and uh, also in some sense Herod's reign with the way that uh, Augustus is running the the Roman Empire mm-hmm. and. I do think it's interesting that Wolf maybe in some way has actually tried to include that here by giving us information about what is going on on Earth and why people are moving around, why there might be people who are needing to seek shelter in a, in a manger. And in this case, it's, it's not because of a, a census or a flight from political persecution, but it is because he, here in the early 70s, is envisioning a kind of uh, capitalist dystopia on Earth that uh, is going to be this real uh, evil burden in in people's lives. I found that interesting. That always raises the question to me in Wolf's stories of whether he thinks, you know, Christianity fails or succeeds, and on what terms on Earth. You know, if if this story is suggesting that there needs to be a new incarnation and a new savior because of, uh, for some reason, Christianity has failed on Earth, and that's the result of Earth being absolutely a catastrophic place to live, both politically and personally. And, you know, if there's no food to eat, that could mean there's some kind of ecological disaster or mm-hmm. that people are just simply greedy. Um, but whatever the case, you know, it's not a pretty picture he's painting. And so is this like, you know, God saying I should start over or do does do the sentient creatures on this planet need a savior? Well, I think that that's there's a real question embedded there, Brandon, which is for whom is Christ being incarnated again on this planet? Is it for the humans or is it for Zaz's species or is it for both? For me, that's an unanswered question in the story. I think I think it raises a lot of really interesting theological questions about the incarnation and honestly the universality of justification through the cross. The fact that there are Jews who live next door to the bananas, I think that's interesting. You know, in our world, the Hebrew nation is God's chosen nation. That's revealed to us in Scripture, his incarnation coming not just in the form of a man, but as a Jewish man, I think is significant in the history of our planet. But I question the relevance of that uh, in, on another planet, especially one that's not entirely humanoid. So I don't, I don't think that that's borne out very much there. I think that was by design. I think that's something that probably Wolf left open on purpose. Uh, but uh, I, th- I think there's a lot of really interesting questions that I think that raises. Right. And that information is given to us with this caveat of apropos of nothing, which is just mm-hmm. to say, uh, you know, a funny way of saying that this doesn't really matter. So I really wondered it's if... Uh, you right. And I so, yeah, that led me to wonder if there is really any theological 
uh, meaning to that, or if this is just something that Wolf is using as one of the clues for readers to to make sure that nobody misses out on the fact that what's happening next door is that the baby Jesus is being born again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it raises real questions also about, I think, Mother Banana's whole role as the Christmas witch in this. I mean, she is not really keen on these native creatures of the planet. And I don't get the sense that she would be pleased to find out that the, you know, the, the second Jesus that she has to go attend the birth to is a six-legged furry creature, uh, on some kind of terrible uh, work planet. So there's a lot of strangeness just wrapped up in some of the way that Wolf is talking about the second incarnation. And I don't know if that's the right term, but that's what we'll use on this planet. And, you know, especially when you consider the absence of the, you know, the King Herod piece of the Gospels here, where things are really bad, but it's not so bad that, you know, we're killing babies to try to figure out who this new Messiah is uh, mm-hmm. to, to stop them from coming to power. But it's it's this weird kind of like Star Trek optimism combined with yeah. uh, the, the, the Christian story where it's like, hey, we're, we're, we're space travel levels like of civilization. Things are better maybe because people can spread out. There's still a lot of corruption and problems, but like we're not killing babies so there's there's that kind of all this kind of stuff is wrapped up here in this story yeah it's dark but it's not that dark (laughs) (laughs) i think we can ask some really fascinating questions also here about the fall of man and its universal effect i think i think we could raise a great discussion about alien worlds and whether they're fallen uh or if 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 they're fallen by their own transgressions or uh, by the association to ours, it looks like humans are colonizing this, this world. Did we did did we bring our fallen nature along like you know a virus uh, so that uh, the, the incarnation of Christ has to happen on this world for the humans there, or did we in some way uh, bring that fallen nature to this world? I think there's some really interesting theological questions that we could ask there. Yeah, Wolf has this real deep theme throughout most of his career and a lot of his stories about the, I think, the relationship between consciousness and fallenness that makes it really hard to parse out. I mean, kind of reading backwards and looking at what he's written after this, I think you do get the sense uh, that Wolf thinks that consciousness is something like being ensouled and that there's no pure way that that happens anymore maybe it's the fall of man but any anything with a soul now is is somehow corruptible and yeah it it does really just raise the question i and i don't i don't know if we're ever going to get to an answer here of who this incarnation is for mike what's your best guess i mean who who do you think this is for on this planet at this at this time well, I, I don't think that Mother Bananas is probably the best source to to inform the answer to that, because she's kind of put off by this alien race. But the fact that there's a Jewish couple next door, and we know that we are sitting here on the eve of the second incarnation, or at least we think it's the second. This may have happened on other worlds and other places. We don't know. But on this planet, on Zaz's planet, the incarnation of Christ is about to happen. And and I've I've got to say that just based on what Wolf gives us, I, r- I really feel like that that is an incarnation that is for Zaz and for his world, because Zaz says, you know, the baby Jesus hasn't come to our world, and 
guess what, Zaz? It's happening next door. <laughs> and there, there is when in that line there is a, a sort of note of of sadness there that, that I I inferred anyway that that he feels like his world has actually been left out. He's clearly heard the stories. He's hanging around with this this Christian family, so he seems to to know something of what Christianity is about, and actually seems to to be in some way maybe not maybe not really actively yearning for this to happen because that might not be really in the realm of possibility for him but but regrets that this hasn't happened for his home world i got the same thing and i'm a dialogue geek so i i hang on words and specifically wolf writes that line for zaz as you see the baby jesus has never come to my world and that word never i i think it just hangs there and it it does kind of connote some sense of despair some sense of longing that i think zaz has for what he's obviously been exposed to this is not a new story to him uh perhaps labafana is is new to him but the story of christ is is nothing new and and i that word never just connotes this longing i think that zaz has that uh he doesn't even realize in this moment that that sense of despair or longing is about to be satisfied Right, and when you couple that with his silence, he's he's unable to answer the question uh, mm-hmm. from the children about whether he knows the baby Jesus or the story uh, there, and he is silent. And that silence could either be taken like it's impolite to answer, or like I don't want to hear more about it right now, or mm-hmm. whatever. But when you when you couple that with his dialogue, I think you get this sense of almost his breath catching, his inability to speak um, because of a certain maybe profoundness he understands about the story. So if we're going to, if we are going to take this all to indicate that this is happening, this incarnation is for Zaz's species, maybe not exclusively, but at least as much for his species as it is for humans again, what, what does this tell us about how these aliens, or maybe how Wolf is thinking about how these aliens fit into what we know about creation from Scripture. Why Why is this only happening now that humans have arrived on this planet? Why has there not actually ever been uh, a six-legged incarnation of, of Jesus here that didn't require the presence of humans? Yeah, that that's fascinating in and of itself. And it's, I, I raised that question uh, a few moments ago, the fact that the incarnation is happening once again through a, a Jewish a human line, it, not not just a Jewish line, but a human line. You know, why not a six-legged incarnation? It raises interesting questions. I, if, for, first of all, I believe, uh, theologically speaking, that the incarnation of Christ 2,000 years ago was for all humans uh, for all time. It's universal. And we talk about the universality of, of the incarnation and of justification through the cross. So that's universal. That's, uh, that's a covering for, for all humans, uh, for all time. So I, I don't think theologically speaking that this particular incarnation in Wolf's story is for the humans there in this world, but rather for, for Zaz's race, for the, for the world that, uh, we're not given the name of this planet of the world, but for Zaz's race and for those who are native to that planet, I, I think that's that's who that incarnation is for, at least from a theological level. And so, you know, it, again, it raises that question, why not a six-legged incarnation? Yeah, so in, in that case, then, 
do we maybe envision that what Wolf has in mind here is that humans really are something that is special and unique in the universe and uh, by virtue of having been specially created by God mm-hmm. and that maybe that's not what is going on with Zaza's species, but they're here some somehow and they now, now that they have encountered humans, that there is this, uh, there is some reason why the, why, why our presence on this planet is going to spark uh, their salvation now as well. For sure. And I I do think that we talk about humanity being a special creation, and I think there is something to that. But in terms of the incarnation, I think it's interesting. John says something in John's Gospel. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, even as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We we understand that God became man. He he left the heavenly realm and he wrapped himself in a robe of flesh. He came as one of us to experience uh, our our pain, our joy, the the fullness of the human experience. And it was because of his sacrifice that we are justified. The cross uh, allows us to be justified, to 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 be reconciled to to the Father uh, through the sacrifice of Christ. It was a it was a human sacrifice, a sinless human sacrifice. So that was very specific and special for the redemption of man. And so I. I raise the question only to raise the question because that's what philosophers do. Uh, we just, we just ask questions. Um, so it, I think it raises the question for, for Zaz's kind, would that incarnation be, uh, be a human or even, even to the next degree to, to be a, a, a Jewish human or would, an incarnation for because if the if the cross is universal if the if the the incarnation is universal for humanity then the humans who have migrated to this world or even born in this world wouldn't necessarily require it's not like god has to send christ again to die again because if that's the case then the original incarnation wasn't enough and that's certainly not not what scripture bears out it's not what we teach theologically, so there's no need for a second incarnation for for mankind, but it does raise the question, you know, for one reason or another, has Zaz's world fallen and now requires an incarnation and justification through, you know, through through sacrifice? So I, I think that's that's really the interesting question here. I do want to say though on a on a lighter note I really I really find it interesting and I love the fact that Wolf tells the story uh here in the Bananas house this this story is being told about this you know this Italian legend that's connected to the feast of Epiphany and I, I I love the way that it kind of uh, weaves its way in, not just not just the fact that they're telling this interesting story that's connected to Epiphany, but that this story is actually connected to the Bananas home. I, I was only just a little disappointed that Wolf never mentioned a small glass of wine uh, for for Mother Bananas, because in the legend of of La Bafana, uh, there are a lot of similarities to and attributes to our 
modern uh, Santa Claus legend. Uh, you know, Wolf, Wolf's narrative says she was too busy sweeping to go with the wise men. And, and we, we know that's part of the legend. They show up to inquire about Christ and she's too busy sweeping. So she doesn't go with them. Uh, and I, I, I think that was definitely interesting that here Mother Bananas has made her way to this world and she's, she's kind of finally caught up with him, right? Um, I know that the that the actual Labafana legend says that in addition to leaving candy and stockings for the good children during Epiphany and coal or sticks for bad children, which we associate uh, very loosely with uh, with the Santa Claus legend, uh, you know, she sweeps the house. I don't see her sweeping the house. And then we have this concept that um, a glass of wine in the original Labafana, the actual Labafana legend, a glass of wine and some morsels of food are left even to this day uh, as they celebrate this during epiphany in italy uh, they'll leave a small glass of wine and some and some crumbs much the same way we do the milk cookies uh, for santa claus so I, I was just a little disappointed that wolf did not include a small glass of wine in the story although i have to say for the love Fana legend I, I i never have figured out how she makes her way to all the good and, and bad children of italy uh, with all that wine i just <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how, do, how does she sweep the floor and find the door? I don't know, but uh, she does. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's that's fantastic. I, um, I, I, you know, maybe maybe Wolf just thinks, uh, she, you know, if she starts sweeping again, she might miss it a second time, and so <laughs> she just needs to hang out and drink some tea and stay sober. Yeah. <laughs> I just that was on a lighter note. I just I, I love that imagery and I love the way that uh, Wolf was able to to tie that to the overall story. It was just very well done. Well, I think this is a, a great note on which to to kind of switch gears here, Mike, and and make you put on uh, make you take off your theology hat and put on your writer hat and actually uh, talk about the the craft that Wolf employs in writing this story and. You know, we use the phrase here, characteristic wolfishness, uh, a lot. And uh, one of the, the big elements of that is that Wolf loves to write these stories in which you can only realize what the story is about once you've actually finished it. And I guess I just am curious, Mike, from your perspective as a, a writer and also as a, as a reader, if you thought that worked for you, if you or if you found that frustrating in some way. No, it, it worked really well for me. As I, as I said before, I... I love the way he packs so much into those early paragraphs. We learn so much and then we're rewarded uh, at the end, albeit it's a, it's a bittersweet uh, reward, but we're rewarded at the end to have this, this wonderful thing come, kind of come full circle. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the way that he weaves uh, that legend of La Bafana into uh, the story that he's telling, I think was just just masterful. And uh, you, you can definitely get a sense that uh, he... Uh, he's just a master of, of his craft in the way that he's able to just kind of drop that at the end. And, and all of a sudden everything makes sense in the story. It's, it's really interesting. I did think though, that the flow at moments is very odd in the narrative. If I, if I had any criticism about uh, the story at all, I would just say that I, I thought there were moments when the flow was very odd. There are a few spots that almost make me feel as though there are things that are going on that as a reader, I'm just, I'm not aware of. I, I'm, I'm observing only, only part of what's going on. And, but that being said, I, I think, I think it's this bold narrative that brings 
the sacred into science fiction, into a science fiction world. Uh, and it introduces uh, that sacred nature in a, in a very natural way. And so I, I, I found that to be uh, really refreshing. As an author myself, I really enjoy playing with allegory and metaphor and simile to tell a story. Uh, for my novel, Hannah Goodhart and the Guardian of Time, there's a couple of chapters that are set on an alien world called Kolos, uh, which is Greek for beautiful. And the Colossian people are a kind of a pseudo-metaphor for the angels. Uh, they have a special relationship with the creator of the universe. They have a council of sentinels that share a special communion uh, with this creator. So I find what Wolf does in this story especially interesting, uh, not in the way that I do, say, with Lewis or Tolkien or, or Langle, who uh, very much use uh, Christian metaphor in their writing to, to different degrees, but that he is just blatantly inserting elements and types, uh, in this case, of the nativity of Christ into this science fiction story, into this science fiction world that he's built for us. And he raises these these kinds of deep theological questions, I, I think, is is something I'm just... I just marvel at it. It's genius. One thing I think Wolf does really well here is uh, to give us the names maybe of the family as symbols, but also to ground them in, in a real sense of, you know, frustration and irritability and all these things that like Tolkien and, and Lewis and uh, Madeline Langwell as well have real clear delineations in almost all of their stories between mm -hmm. the good characters and the evil characters. And in this one, you just get a sense of a person who is too caught up in their own harriedness to be good or evil. They're, they're just trying to get through the next day. Um, yeah. And I think it's just a wonderful trick that Wolf is able to use, and he uses it in a lot of his fiction. Um, I, I, th I can only think of one you know, truly good character in you know almost all of wolf's fiction who is uh in in the book of the long sun uh, patera silk is the character who nevertheless does really kind of rotten things in order uh to further his mission which he's given by god but i think that that is one of the tricks that wolf uses that it, you know pulls you away from pure allegory and leaves you with uh, a kind of a person stranded in a sea of symbols who's mm -hmm. stuck with their own normal emotions. And, and I, I think this story is a great example of it. For sure, for sure. I, th I think if there's any villain in this story, it is uh, this metaphor of bondage that is fleshed out in a, in a very real way for the Bananas family in this servitude that they are caught up in. I, I think if there's any any villain in this story, it's that. Yeah, and of course, we should note that this is not the, the first story where Wolf has envisioned a future in which slavery comes back and is seeing Christianity as the, the really the, the last best hope for, uh, you know, an antidote to slavery, to, for liberation from this bondage. It's something that's very much on Wolf's mind here in the, the sort of social and political turmoil of the, the 1960s and the early 1970s. 
Well, Christ says in the Gospels, his primary mission is, he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I don't find it at all surprising that the Incarnation has found its way to to Zaz's world, where once again, man is being bound, enslaved, and that... That atmosphere, that situation has in some way either corrupted Zaz's world or perhaps uh, it was preexistent there and, and we've just traveled into it. But uh, we, we see, we definitely see man enslaved, man in bondage. And it's, it's not surprising to me that where there is bondage, Christ shows up to seek and to save that which was, which was lost. That's a really interesting observation, Mike, because I, I do think that uh, we, we've just really come off uh, Wolf's first masterpiece novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which also in, envisions uh, human colonies on, on other planets. And in these uh, two colonies on, on these uh, binary planet system, uh, there is there is slavery again. It has returned. But in that world, we are given to, to to understand there's inferences we can make that slavery is not existing on earth that it is only happening out in the colonies and it is a book that is really very much about uh, about colonialism and i wonder if that's not actually what's going on here as well that these labor contracts this uh, sort of indentured servitude isn't something that's permissible on earth it's only permissible on these colonies and so in some ways we can maybe take that to tie in this question uh with uh, you know about the the fallenness of the the this planet of Zaz's homeworld, that it is about the fact that humans have brought slavery there now. Yeah, I think that's a great observation, and and certainly I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Well, I think on that note, that's a good way to leave the episode on a kind of this note of hope of these servants being set, set free, which is the aftermath of this story, the hopeful aftermath. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. Uh, we want to thank Mike Morrison once again for coming on the show. We had an absolute blast, Mike. Uh, likewise, likewise. Uh, Brandon, uh, thank you so much, Glenn. Thank you. It, it's been a pleasure. Um, I just uh, want to just express once more uh, how much I enjoyed reading this story, this wonderful story that uh, Gene Wolfe has left for us, and uh, certainly the opportunity to uh, come on the podcast here and discuss it. And before we sign off for this episode, I do want to encourage our listeners to to go check out your show, Metatrex. As I said at the top, it really is my absolute favorite Star Trek show. And you don't even have to have a background in Star Trek or to be actively watching Star Trek in order to get a great deal out of that. Uh, and of course, we want to encourage everyone to to pick up your new book, Hannah Goodhart and the Guardian of Time. I, I mean, you can tell just from listening to Mike talk about it that there are going to be some thematic and also, I think, craft parents. Uh, parallels with the work of Wolf. And uh, I hope everyone will pick that up. Yeah, thank you so much. And certainly want to uh, invite your listeners to follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook. That's where I'm most active on uh, Twitter. My Twitter handle is at cmichael1701. Again, I appreciate you all having me on. Well, it's our pleasure. And I want to ask our listeners to head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the story of our comments uh, about the theological implication and some of the really deep questions we raised. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. 
All right. Well, for next time, we're going to start reading Wolf's masterpiece novella, The Death of Dr. Island, which you can find in the collection, The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. And it's also in the Best of Gene Wolf collection, if you've got that. This is a, a really phenomenal, really awesome piece, and I'm very excited about it, very much looking forward to it. And so, until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>